It seems like the years are moving so fast. It's like my calendar is an oscillating fan now. It's, uh, I don't know if you feel that way. Yeah, you can't steal the microphone, Dave. I'm sorry. It's, it's church property. We've got to have it back. Uh, so, yeah, uh, welcome to 2023. Hard to believe it's already here. Uh, I'm excited about our passage this morning in the, in the book of Acts, and I've just been so blessed to, uh, to be in Acts and, and to see so many things uh, that relate to our walk with the Lord, relate to Christ himself. And so I want to show you what we're going to do. I've got uh, this month lined out now. I can't believe we're January, but uh, today is Dotless Devotion, the devotion of Paul as an example to us in Acts chapter 21. Next week is Great Escapes watching how Paul kept having to escape, Acts 22. The week after that, I'm calling it Unbound, because we see the play on bound and unbound in that passage, which you'll have to come back for to see, January 15th. Anybody feeling convicted, kind of feeling like the walls are pressing in on you? Well, that's uh, going to be the theme of January 22nd. And then uh, January 29th, I think this is very appropriate, spiritual hot potato. Uh, that's what Paul was for uh, the leaders of Rome. He was a spiritual hot potato, and they kept trying to toss him around. So that's Acts 20, 25 and January 29th. Next Sunday morning, also, I wanted to mention that Bob Frank is starting a series on the kingdoms. And so I want to promote that, and I encourage you to come out to that. And uh, that's next Sunday morning. What time? 8.45. There you go. Good. So this morning, we will be in Acts uh, chapter 21, if you'll turn there with me, please. Father God, as we get into this passage, I pray that you'll guide and direct us and, uh, and help us to honor you through it. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I've seen being in Acts is uh, that, you know, Luke wrote two books. What was the first one? Luke, <laughs> duh. And what was the second? The book of Acts. And so it's Luke volume one, Luke volume two. And what I've really noticed is how a lot of things he says about Paul, he actually said about Jesus, there were similar circumstances they went through. Obviously, Jesus was Lord and Paul is not, but the circumstances were similar at times, and we'll really see that this morning. And, and I just see all these parallels. And for example, as Jesus resolved to go to Jerusalem, and that eventuated in his death, Paul will resolve to go to Jerusalem, and Paul will resolve to go to Rome, and all of that will eventuate in his death uh, eventually. And so we just see some similar things here. So I will tell you, we're dealing with, since this is the new year, that the year of this story is probably A.D. 57. And somebody probably can calculate how many years that was ago. I'm not going to worry about that now, but A.D. 57. So this is happening approximately 34 years after the death of Christ. So time has moved, or 24, I'm sorry, time has moved on, and uh, the church in Jerusalem is still there, but the gospel is also going to mission to, sorry, to Gentiles. So hopefully we'll get it a better start here in New Year's. Acts chapter 21, and uh, I love stories in the Bible that have to do with sailing, the nautical side, and uh, we see that a little bit in Acts chapter 21, verse 1. So I'm going to read this paragraph to you and then just uh, tell you a few things about it. And when we had parted from them, now who was the them? Way back when, last year, a year ago, we talked about Paul and the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. And so they were heartbroken to see Paul go to Jerusalem and they said, Paul, you don't go there, bad things are going to happen to you. And Paul said, I must go, and he said goodbye to them. And so that was Acts chapter 20. 
So it was already emotionally traumatic. And so now in chapter 21, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So in the Mediterranean, they traveled around a lot with ships, of course, and they would often do day trips. And so if you're going 30 miles or so or whatever it was, you know, you could do it in a day trip. By my calculation, the ships probably at best were going like five and a half knots, something like that. So it was not real super fast, but it was better than walking. And so we're going to see that now because the route they're going to take is like that. They go a day trip to Kos, then a day trip to Rhodes, then to Patara, and then from Patara down to Ptolemaeus is about, uh, or Tyre, is about 400 plus miles. And so that trip would have taken several days. And so this is the journey they're on. And Paul is relentlessly determined to get to Jerusalem and he wanted to go for the feast days, etc. but he is determined. And so in Acts 21.1, when it said they had parted from them, that word has the connotation also of emotional difficulty. So understand that this is a case where Paul is determined the people around him are emotionally distraught that he's going to do this because they figure bad things are going to happen. And along the way, they get prophecies from the Holy Spirit that bad things will happen. And they're emotionally distraught. Paul, don't do it. And Paul says, I've got to do it. So I, I want to not only talk about the kind of the facts of the passage today, but I want you to think about the emotions of the passage and the relationships and kind of all of this. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody was relentlessly determined to do something and the people around him or her were saying, don't do it? You ever seen that? I certainly have. And this is exactly what we have. Now, I've had teachers before say that Paul is sinning because Paul goes back and he takes a vow and he does these kind of things that are Jewish and he's not Jewish anymore and he fussed out the Galatians about this and yet Paul compromised and did it and everybody was telling him by the Holy Spirit, don't do it, Paul, don't do it. And Paul did it anyway, so therefore he must have been disobedient. Any of y'all been taught that before? And I've thought about that over the years a lot, and I've actually come around 180 degrees to the other side of it. This passage just about brings me to tears at the devotion of Paul. Because all of that trauma paints the backdrop for Paul's commitment to Jesus Christ. It puts the background behind it and makes us think about how committed he really was. And so he gets on the sea and he goes to these towns, and some of them are famous. Uh, by the way, Hippocrates, the, uh, the physician of the Hippocratic Oath, he had a medical school in Kos, and so all these places are famous in history. And Paul finally gets down to the area we call Israel, or near it, Tyre, 
100 miles north of Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he seeks out the disciples, and he's going to spend seven days there. And during that time, he may have known them already, but during that time, they're going to get pretty close. And they're going to really love one another. And you have to reckon with this in verse 4, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So I ask you, is the Holy Spirit telling Paul not to go? Is the Holy Spirit giving Paul a command to say, do not go to Jerusalem? That's your question. Because it kind of looks like it, because everybody's kind of spiritually ganging up on Paul. And I take it as not that it's a command, don't go, but it's a prophecy of what will happen when you do go. Is this commanded of Paul that he go? I don't think so. I think it's Paul's choice. And I think we have to come to grips with this, and I love this because a lot of times in our Christian walk, we have had these really hard and fast things. You, you do this, you cannot do that, etc. And the Christian life is a lot more squishy than that. Now, in the fundamentals of the faith, it's not squishy. Don't get me wrong. And when it comes to the nature of Jesus Christ and what he did, it is absolutely not squishy. But when it comes to us walking with the Lord and making decisions, I think the New Testament makes it very clear that there are times when we have to pray to the Holy Spirit, pray to the Lord to give guidance and direction, and we have to follow that. And that there are some times when somebody's convicted of this, and other people are convicted of that, and which one's right? Both of them. We are allowed to disagree. What we're not allowed to do is tear the church to pieces. And I think we see this here, and imagine Paul. In fact, later we'll see the word, the verb there is actually the verb that they use for beating clothes when they were cleaning and drying clothes, and they would beat them, and that's the word used for what they did to Paul. They basically emotionally beat him. And imagine your Paul going through this. Um, yeah, so it's just crazy. And so in verse 5 here, uh, and, and by the way, if you haven't noticed already, you'll notice that timing words are just saturated in this passage. And so in verse 5, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they brought everybody, wives and children. Reminds me of back when your family could go with you to the airport, to the gate. And the big question was, well, do we leave now and watch the plane take off? Or do we, you know, go to the car, and it was like the gates were really crowded and everything else, and it could be really emotional, and I'm like, it's like being a gone with the wind here now, you know. And so uh, that's kind of the situation, and I wonder if that's not why it mentions the wives and children being there, is because every emotional stop is brought out on Paul and accompanied us until we were outside the city. So it's kind of like him leaving the Ephesian elders, except not as long, but still, it's trauma for Paul just to get away from people. So they got on the ship and they left. And so in verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, which is about 25 miles south. So you see it there on a the map. I assume you can see it. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, which was founded by Herod the Great. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Who was one of the seven? Where does that come from? That comes from Acts chapter 6, one of the first, what we call deacons, but they weren't really deacons, but they were kind of like it. 
they resolved that issue with the, the widows and the feeding. And so guess what? Old Philip is still around years later. And I, I, you don't hear this priest much, but I've thought about it a lot in this uh, going through Acts, is that Paul's on our missionary journeys, and we talk about that, but the people in Palestine, in Israel, in Jerusalem were still there. And they were having to fight that daily fight of Gentile versus Jew. And here Philip is still back in the homeland. And Paul comes in there, and uh, Philip is still alive. And furthermore, Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And uh, by the way, Acts chapter 2 has women prophesying. Anna prophesied, remember, around the birth of Jesus 1 Corinthians 11 mentions women prophesying, so it's not unusual. But then, while they were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus, the famous Agabus who prophesied about the famine, he comes in from Judea. And I think that's God's way of saying it's about to get serious. And so coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. And this is symbolic probably was Paul's money belt. In that money belt, he may have carried the donation given by the other churches to the Jerusalem church, the contribution. And so as a symbol, Agabus is going to take that belt and wrap it around his own feet and hands and say, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. It's a prophecy. I think it's uncanny how so much of this seems to parallel the story of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to read something to you from Luke chapter 18. You're welcome to turn there if you wish. But in Luke 18, as we're getting further along in the story of Luke taking the 12, Jesus said to them, Luke 18, 31, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But the disciples were oblivious. Verse 34, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. And furthermore, we know from Peter later on, they would basically say, Jesus, don't talk that way. Don't be negative. Don't say that. You're not going to die. You shouldn't die. And it's real similar to what we see here in the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul. Now, did Paul have a choice? Yes. Paul had a choice. So he did not have to go to Jerusalem, but Agabus says this is what will happen if you do. And so I think this shows Paul's dauntless devotion that he would not be stopped for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I think in Acts is what we're seeing is just how dedicated Paul was to Jesus Christ. And I think we can learn a lot from this. You know, there's always some tension when it comes to prophecy, and, and you all have heard this too, you know, the old prophecy. It could be a guy or a girl saying this to the other gender, but basically saying, God told me you're going to marry me. Anybody ever hear that? Anybody here ever had that said to you? Did, did we say that? <laughs> and, of course, the correct response is, well, when God tells me that, 
So there's always this, this kind of thing about prophecy. It's like, if you were to tell me God has given me a prophecy about you, just understand I would take that with a grain of salt, no offense. But I'm like, if it's truly from God, God will affirm it to me, and we'll see. But just because somebody says they prophesy doesn't mean I have to believe it. Is there an amen? Yeah. So it's like, you know, test the spirit. But here we have a God-given prophecy. There's human choice, there's freedom, there's different opinions. And I, I love this line. I thought this was fantastic. Well-intentioned people can love the Lord, but be wrong in their opinions. Remember, we're sinners. You can be well-intentioned, you can have the greatest motives, and I can, and be wrong. Right? Right. And so, their take is, Paul, we don't want you to die. They are speaking from comfort. And I get it. They're speaking from love and from relationship. They don't want Paul to die. So in verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged them not to go to Jerusalem. And just by the way, it's critically important. In a church, we're going to have a lot of different opinions. And I'll be blunt, you guys are very strong-willed people. You're going to have different opinions, and what we see from the book of Acts is that we handle them lightly with a loose grip and with love. Amen? You ought to amen the socks off of that one. It's all right. I want you to have opinions. I don't like people that don't have no opinions. I ain't got none. You need to. Read your Bible. And by the way, I affirm what the video said. We need to be in our Bibles every day. Start today. But let's hold our opinions with a light grip, and let's not club each other with them. So the early church had that test. So in verse 13, Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? That's the word to pound my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I've always wondered how you know who preaches this verse, but I digress. Paul, go out and live your best life now. But I digress. And verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, here's where the church reacts out of respect. We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. They showed respect. They resigned to it, even though they were heartbroken. And so in verse 15, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. We're going up to the hot spot. They killed Jesus. They killed Stephen. Will they kill Paul? And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. History's first record of a Manasin lodge. So, don't read too much into that. The third missionary journey comes to an end. This is it. And there's about to be a shift in the book of Acts. Shifting away from Jerusalem Shifting away from just gospel sermons to Paul defending himself and giving a testimony that God is working, but in maybe a different way. Okay, so I'm going to um, I'm going to kind of pause for a moment. I want to ask, how many of our youth here uh, from our youth program do we have this morning? Okay, anybody else? Now I'm not trying to exclude the older people. But I especially want the youth to hear this. 
I want to tell you a little story, then we'll get back into the Word. You're going to have choices in life more than once about whether you're going to live in a comfort zone or not. We tend to want to settle for the comfort zone. And that's what happened here with Paul's friends. They were like, Paul, don't go into a place of risk. Stay safe, stay comfortable. So often we say to somebody, be safe. So years ago, I'm going back into the 1990s somewhere. Um, I was on a, a, a retreat, a three-day retreat called Trace Dias, also known as Crucio or Walk to Emmaus. Anybody go on those? Greatest three-day experience of grace in my life. It was amazing. And because I was a first-timer, I was one of the members at the table and basically was led along with whatever they wanted to do. And they take your watch away and you're out of control. It'll drive you crazy. But the head of my table said to me at the end, God has told me, kind of like a prophecy, he has something big for you but it's going to cost you. It's going to be painful. And I thought, well, <laughs> do we want that or not? Well, a few years went by and nothing happened. But in the meantime, uh, you know, we were running a program for high school kids. We were doing a Bible class off campus. They were getting credit for it. And because we were off campus, I could lead kids to the Lord. I could pray with them. It was amazing. And I've been told by friends, you'll never get into Metro Atlanta schools because they're too sophisticated for you. You can never get there. Well, all of a sudden, an opportunity came up to do that. And there was somebody that said, I really want you to move to Atlanta to get these started. We're going to be in the largest school system in Georgia that had something like 25 high schools. And we actually were, got it worked out to speak to the school board, and I was the one to speak, and they would only give me 10 minutes and we so happened to schedule it, not knowing, Thursday, September 13th, 2001. It was two days after 9-11. And that was the most surreal week of my life, or one of them for sure. So this was really big. And I was being told, get out of your comfort zone and move to Atlanta to do this. And we were in a nice place that a lot of people said, this is the greatest place on earth. Why would you want to live anywhere else? Comfort zone versus risky adventure that has some chance of success, some chance of failure, some chance for disaster. So after 9-11, because the airlines were battered financially, Delta ran a one-day sale, $31 any city around the United States, one-day sale. So that day, uh, Susie was gone, and I ended up booking a trip for us to go with Summer to New York City to work relief work at Ground Zero at Christmas. But the other thing is I talked to a couple of my buddies, and I said, this is a really good chance for us to go to Dallas, because I know you're interested in Dallas Seminary. Why don't the three of us go out there? So we did. We had a blast. But both guys are former military. One had been Army Soldier of the Year, and the other one had just gotten out of the Navy and was on a Navy SEAL team. These guys were sharp, and we had a blast. In fact, it was kind of funny, remembering back in the dark ages when I was at Dallas and when, when uh, Dwight was at Dallas, and they required coats and ties and all that, and I told the guys, we got, we got a dress code here. 
So they had coats and ties on. They were in the cafeteria one day, and a girl came up and said, are you guys Mormons? But anyway, um, one evening, the first evening we got in there, um, we had nothing to do in the evening, and the local Cineplex with multiple screens was showing Black Hawk Down, The Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings, and Kate and Leopold. So we were like, let's go to the movie. And they were like, what are we going to go see? And I was driving the van, and I said, well, obviously we're red-blooded American males. There's only one choice here. We're going to the Meg Ryan movie. You're going to have to have a little humor today, okay? So they were like, my SEAL friend said, Sid, I will cause pain in parts of your body that you do not know exist if you take us to Kate Leopold. So we went to see Black Hawk Down, and, and it's a fantastic movie. I loved it, in spite of the, the difficulty of the situation for the Rangers. So the next night, same thing comes up. What movie are we going to go see? And I'm like, and they said, Webb, if you mention Kate and Leopold, we're going to tie you to the furniture of the hotel room. So we went to see Lord of the Rings. One of the most profound, significant experiences in my life because for the coming weeks, I had never read the books, and I, you know, the previews looked a little demonic to me, and I was like, I don't know. I fell in love with that movie. And it instantly appeared in my top five favorite movies. And at the time, I was wrestling with this issue of what do I do? And the story of Frodo in Fellowship of the Rings, of a guy that was in a comfort zone, the Shire, and was challenged to leave the Shire to go on a great and important adventure that would cost him, was exactly where I was. So the reason I'm saying this for you young guys, you are going to face times in your life where you're going to have a choice between do we stay in a comfort zone or do we launch out into some great adventure for the Lord knowing that there may be a price to pay and knowing that I'm going to have to trust him day by day in faith. Am I willing to do that? And parents, are you willing to do that? To let your kids go and to let your kids serve the Lord. It may go well, but there may be a price to pay. And I think there's two sides of it. We have to make the choice as young people and we as parents have to be willing to allow God to work in their lives. Anybody face that before? And so for you young people, you pray to the Lord and see how he directs you. But I'm going to say this, I'm speaking specifically to you today. I beg you not to choose the comfort zone. I beg you to stretch yourself and trust God day by day by faith. Because it may not be comfortable, it may not be obvious. But watch God work when we trust him. Did we ever think it would be anything else than trusting him? So... I just wanted to stop and share that with you guys to think about. And I, I would think it'd be great if you parents would talk to your kids about that later today and just say, hey, let's have a conversation about that. How does that work? What does that look like in your life? All right, so sorry for the departure, but I think it was important. So all these kind of things we're dealing with because Paul, you know, we think of him, he's the great apostle and he's the great missionary and all that, but these are the painful decisions he had to make in his life and this is how dedicated he was to serve Jesus Christ. So now we're going to move on to verse 17. 
The missionary journeys are going to come to an end. Paul is in Jerusalem, and now other questions come up. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. This is James. He's been around. He has had to live the tension between Jews and Gentiles for decades. And he is still a leader, maybe the leader now, in the church in Jerusalem. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as far as the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. We saw that in Acts chapter 15. Now, what should Paul do? Are they telling Paul to compromise his faith and become Jewish again? Well, Paul's been Jewish. So some people have said Paul is sinning here because he's going to go through with the vow. It's either that or Paul is showing his commitment to not cause unnecessary offense. There's nowhere in here that Paul compromises the gospel. But Paul is, to a degree, an observant Jew. Now, we don't really wrestle with this here, but in Jerusalem, they did. There were 30 to 50,000 people in Jerusalem. Thousands had come to Christ. This was a strong issue of tension in the community. And so James is saying, Paul, it's going to look bad if you act disrespectful to the Jews because they're already saying that you've been challenging their customs. And so let's do this to show that you are actually respectful and, and basically Jewish in your background. What's Paul going to do? Paul is going to make a decision that, in effect, will cost him his life. Because Paul will acquiesce in this, it is going to cause incredible pain. This is Caesarea, by the way. I want to come to a timeline, but before I do that, I want to show you that Caesarea, a beautiful place in the coast of Israel. But here's your timeline. Jesus died in AD 33. It's thought it was April 3rd. 49, the first missionary journey begins. We have the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15. We have the third missionary journey coming to an end here in front of us in, in AD 57. Paul has about 10 more years to live. He will die at AD 67. But what I want you to see this morning, this just, it's just very heavy to me, sorry, but it is, is that James is saying to Paul, Paul, we're trying to figure all this out. Jew and Gentile. Thirteen years from now, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the Romans. Two million people will die. And James is like, Paul, we're trying to figure this out. And I'm like, James, it doesn't matter anymore because you're a dead man walking. 
What if you knew that 13 years from now, it was all going to come crashing down? You would be in the situation that they were at that time. The Romans got really upset with the rioting, and finally they had enough. And when they crushed them, they didn't just crush them, but this is obviously a modern photo. That's the retaining wall of the temple. None of the temple still survives. They pushed the big blocks over the side of the hill, and uh, this is what the temple compound looked like. That's a model, but that's basically what it looked like. It was humongous, but they took the temple itself and they just overthrew it completely, killed two million Jews, and all we have today is the western retaining wall and then the rubble of the blocks down at the base. When the Romans did it, they did it really good, and they destroyed Jerusalem. We are coming now in the book of Acts to the end of Jerusalem, in effect. After this, there will be no more mention of Jerusalem. The Jews in Jerusalem have rejected Christ himself, Peter, John, Stephen, and Paul now. And as a result, in 13 years, they're going to be obliterated. Uh, that's just amazing to me. It's easy to talk about the Bible stories, but it's easy to also forget the culture and the context of what they were going through. 13 years from now, these issues won't matter because the Jews will be scattered all over the world. So in verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who was teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Similar to the charges against Stephen and also Jesus. Jesus is trying to overthrow the temple. Well, they're going at it again. Verse 29, they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed, a very strong assumption, that Paul had brought him into the temple. They assumed it, but Paul did not. So all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and literally were dragging him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. This is a Roman head of a thousand troops. He at once took soldiers and centurions. They were head of a hundred. So we have at least 200 Roman soldiers coming in here to stop this riot. And they ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The tribune gets there just in time. Verse 33, tribune doesn't know what's going on. It's like if there's a shooting, the police will come. They don't know who did what, so you might well be put in handcuffs until they can sort out what's going on, and that's what happens here. The tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. There was no common understanding, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, Away with him! Have we ever heard something like that before? And what's going to happen is in a few years, it's going to be away with them. And God gave them every chance. And I kind of look at this as Jerusalem's last chance 
It's sad. It's really sad. They had the Lord in their midst. They had the gospel. They had Paul. They had James. They had Stephen. And spiritually, they can't look past their nose, and they pay the price. So the story goes on. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, because Paul was speaking Greek, you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Because they spoke Greek in Egypt at the time, and he's assuming Paul is that guy. And by the way, that rebellion cost the lives of over 400 people. And Paul said, no, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. Yeah, Tarsus had several hundred thousand people there. It was a seat of trade and learning and culture. And Paul said, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And we go into chapter 22, which we'll talk about next time. Kind of a last thought here. You know, Luke and Acts are written to Theophilus, a Roman official, we think. And so it's interesting to compare the two and think about what Luke is trying to say about the story of Paul. Theophilus, we are not rebels. We are respectful of Rome. We are respectful of Israel. You've heard the story of Jesus Christ. Now you've heard the story of those who tell about him. In none of this have we been anti-Rome, have we defied the government. And in fact, as we go further on, you'll see that the Roman officials find no fault with Paul. Where have we heard that before? So if just to sum it up here, and then we'll close. It's possible for you to have strong convictions and still be wrong. It's possible for us to disagree and for both sides to be right. It's possible to maintain a testimony that is respectful to our government and to the people around us. And it's possible to pay a price for all of that. It's possible that we can live in comfort zones and get away with it for a period of time, like the Jews were. The clock was ticking. It's also possible for us to risk everything by stepping out for the Lord, not knowing what's going to happen the next day. It's possible for the Spirit to warn us that it's going to be painful. And it's possible that even then, that is what we have to do. And so in 2023, we have to be in the Word every day. We have to have a time with the Lord every day. We have no option there. We have to. We have to continually seek the will of the Lord. We have to continually seek His guidance. And we have to continue to love one another, even when we disagree and even when it might be painful. Because for better or for worse, we are the body of Christ and he has chosen us for some crazy reason I don't know. And he loves us so much that he was willing to go through that pain and give his life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul. I'm just 
awe-stricken by his honoring of you, by his devotion, by his not settling for the comfort zone. Father, help us to learn from that and help us to honor you day by day. And Father, help us to be the kind of people who are willing to have the boldness to say, we don't know where we're going, but we'll trust in you to get us there. To the glory of Jesus Christ.